five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. and welcome to the Space Economy Podcast. My special guest today is Clark Lindsay, the lead analyst of a new 161-page report from New Space Global called Cislunar Market Opportunities in Space Business Within the Earth-Moon System. Before I welcome Clark, and as a disclaimer, I will mention that New Space Global is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Multiverse Media Group for which I also work for as its President and Chief Operating Officer. The report is available to purchase online at cislunar.report with a single user license, a team license for up to 10 users, and there's also a corporate license. All right, here's my interview with Clark on the new report. Listen in. Welcome, Clark, to the Space Economy Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. Now, before we get into the report itself, perhaps we should start with defining what we mean by cislunar. So how does the report define cislunar space? That's, we define it as the, the volume of space reaching from low Earth orbit up to geostationary orbit and beyond to the moon. And even out to maybe one of the Lagrange points since those are used now to uh, relay communications. And so it's a pretty big area, but it's uh, it's getting filled with activity now. Right. And so, uh, like you said, it's a, it's a pretty large volume of space, and it, there is some new activity that's coming. Um, how is the report structured? Uh, we sort of divide it into uh, what's going on in, in Earth orbit, especially particularly a robotic type of activities and then we look at the moon and there's a, a lot of missions coming up heading toward the moon and then uh, we'd look sort of shift over from more, the sort of robotic type of systems to what's happening with human space flight and those in the cislunar realm so in particular we've got um, an introductory chapter then we have in space infrastructure chapter two uh, chapter three is lunar markets. Chapter four is human cislunar. Uh, chapter five is commercial uh, cislunar development path. So, and the report itself is about uh, 161 odd pages with lots of reference material, which I thought was great. Um, so, why don't we just go through each chapter, and we're not going to discuss it in, in too much depth, but uh, discuss the technologies and, and, and market prospects. So let's start with uh, chapter two, in-space uh, infrastructure. What technologies do you think will be easier to develop? Which face obstacles and, and which technology market prospects stand out? Well, yeah, the first uh, few sections of chapter two are focused on sort of this general area of servicing, of, of particularly that, that's become a, a part of at least that's become a reality in the past couple of years, when Northrop Grumman sent a uh, a servicing satellite to one of the a geostationary uh, communication satellite owned by Intelsat, to that was run, it was running out of station keeping fuel. They those 
satellites have to maintain a certain position and the uh, satellite attached itself to the nozzle of that Intelsat and we will keep it in place for two or three years. And that for a satellite like that, you know, that could be many millions of dollars for Intelsat to keep it running for a few more years. It's just, uh, you know, cream on the cake there um, to keep those satellites running. And so that's become a reality. They've done that for two now, and they're going to be launching uh, a next generation version uh, in the next year. Or so they say they have customers lining up. And so that's, after all these years, I mean, the, sh the shuttle did some servicing back in the 80s, but they were really just uh, demonstrations. It was too expensive to use the shuttle for anything uh, operational. But there were a lot of uh, proposed uh, systems. The MDA of uh, Canada, for example, had a contract briefly with Intelsat uh, to do a robotic servicing mission. But, but for various financial and so other reasons, it, that fell apart. So this has been going on for a long time. So it's nice to finally see it come together. And then from that kind of servicing, we think of like repairs. Eventually you'll start doing repairs of satellites. And then you'll do like uh, this whole issue of the debris that's uh, growing in, in Earth, Earth orbit. And at least in some cases, especially for like a big defunct satellite, you like to be able to send something there, attach to it and, and lower it to an orbit that will bring it into the atmosphere and burn up. So that's the emphasis of the first few sections is these type of servicing operations. So uh, so going back to the uh, the Intelsat servicing with the, the MEV, MEV-1, so uh, I'm going to, you know, we don't, we, we don't know how much uh, um, Intelsat paid for that servicing, do we? No, but you you have to think it's it's definitely cheaper than buying a new satellite, right? On the short term, that's and so definitely cost effective, uh, as opposed to you know building a, a new satellite to fly, um, and 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 so they weighed the you know the how much extra revenue they're going to get generate from the satellite. So, right. so in terms of of, of that type of of servicing. Um, and with that, uh, I suppose, proof of concept, uh, would you say that we've turned the corner and, and, and this is going to become a, dare I say, use the word routine uh, event? I think for geostationary, uh, definitely. I mean, like I said, uh, North Grumman believes, says they've had, they have customers lining up. They have a the next generation system, instead of the whole servicing satellite being assigned to one satellite, it'll release uh, small modules, and each of those modules will go and attach to a, a geostationary satellite and keep it in, in in proper position. And so that will be, that will make that that much more uh, economical, from at least uh, from North Grumman's point of view. So I see that you know, and uh, geostationary uh, market right now has been you know I think I mentioned in the report about how the streaming and so forth has taken some of their business away. Which, the direct to home satellite services or direct you know, uh, TV services was a major revenue producer for the space industry. And that's being hurt by the streaming and so forth. So I imagine a lot of these companies will want to keep their satellites in orbit as long as possible rather than having to buy new satellites, which they aren't sure will have a market. Have what, a market the market's, what the market's going to be like, right? So, uh, so 
I suppose in that first part of space infrastructure, um, in space servicing and in particular geostationary, uh, you know, you're seeing that as as um, probably in the short term the the, the leading technology and, and and market opportunities. Right. In terms of just pure commercial, you know, one commercial company dealing with another commercial company, that's a, a real market now. I mean, it's a real you can call that a sector of the space industry. There are others like the uh, moving uh, satellites, uh, you know, defunct satellites. That currently is still usually a government-funded project to for a commercial company to do. Like Astroscale is probably the leading uh, name in that area. So they've got contracts. I think ESA, for example, to to move. Uh, or to demonstrate the moving of a satellite, a dead satellite out of orbit. And so that's Sorry. still, I mean, that's quite, you know, that's this kind of gray area between, you know, commercials, <clears throat> commercial company doing a service, but the main customer is the government. Right. So, so that sort of brings us up to another portion of the in-space infrastructure, which is uh, I suppose you could two areas that maybe we can talk about it in space assembly and manufacturing. Uh, and then I suppose maybe before that, sort of because you were talking about Astroscale, space de debris uh, removal and, and, and prevention, um, which actually, I actually, I'll skip one of my forward to one of my questions uh, on this because to me it's, an, it's a really important issue uh, with respect to space debris. Um, you know, I would think a, a robust cislunar economy will need to deal with space debris removal. Uh, and I'm referring to not all any new debris that's being put up there, but there is a lot of legacy debris that's up there. Right. Um, so, so, you know, in thinking about that cislunar economy, um, what are some of the obstacles that need to be dealt with? And um, uh, who's dealing with it maybe? And, you know, uh, does that need to be dealt with before there's a robust cislunar economy? Uh, so it depends who you talk to. Elon Musk says, oh, you can have millions and millions of satellites and not have any problem. <laughs> but uh, that's, I would consider it a little too optimistic. I think uh, there's a number of issues involved. Uh, one is the, so far the for the U.S. Uh, launched or owned satellites, the, they were supposed to be deorbited within 25 years. And now, just within re the past couple months, the FAA has, or FCC, I'm sorry, had put out this, uh, uh, not so much a ruling, but a planned ruling to lower that to five years. If that, if that goes into effect, then a lot of, it's going to get a, a lot more attention in industry about deorbiting. And they may, they may start seeing some deals made with, Companies like Astroskill, the, you know, if our if our deorbiting th thing doesn't work, it's built into the satellite, then we want you to come and move it. For example, and that would so that would sort of create, help accelerate the market. For so, so interesting. So if the FCC uh, now they put forward the ruling, but I understand Congress has some issues with it. Um, yeah, I don't think so, it's so much against the substance; it's just the way you know. It, you know, there's in the U.S. system. There's this argument about 
how far an agency can go in extending its uh, purview. Right. right. <laughs> that goes if turf war. Turf war, yeah. So, so, um, so we'll have to see, but I think that's one way or another that's eventually going to become the norm in about five years because there's so much. Uh, I mean, it's really the past, let's say, two or three years, the debris problem is really getting more and more attention throughout the policymakers and, and the space. So, industry. if the policymakers are pushing this um, and recognition of the problem um, uh, grows, um, and so I, that's, that's good. And of course, you know, the, the purpose in part of, of, of what, of what the FCC did or did, or sorry, said was to deal with anything that's going up now. But so going back to my original question, because of all this attention now and moving forward on the policy side, is that going to force governments to act on what I call legacy debris, debris that's been up there for decades? And 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 you know, pay companies in essence to uh, clean out what they can. Are we going to see that? Somebody going to well, step up? I guess the hope has always been that there'll be a, a bounty system. You know, that if you went out and and retrieve, say, some old uh, dead scientific satellite and brought it and brought it down for deorbiting, that you would get some amount of payment. Whether I think something like that might start to form. I mean, there's some really big uh, scientific satellites. I remember ESA had this huge satellite, Terra, I think, a few years ago. that just went completely dead just overnight. And the bigger the area, the bigger the volume, that's the bigger the target, right? So you really want to start with these big, big targets, maybe a big, uh, second stages and so forth. Much easier to, to, to deal with. Yeah, and also, like I say, they're... The probability of hitting them is much higher because their their right. cross sections are very big, and so I could imagine that once you know you've really proven that you can do this, that Astroscale and these other companies can go up there and 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 carry this out in a very straightforward manner for a reasonable <laughs> quote reasonable fee, that uh, we may see some may see that gradually growing that that yeah. So this brings up a whole host of policy uh, or legal issues, I should say. So, you know, uh, for instance, let's say the uh, company X says, we'll um, take care of that uh, piece of debris for you, but they do it in such a way that instead of actually deorbiting it, it then maybe gets reused. Uh, you know, it goes into, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, a, uh, a depot, in space where you're mm -hmm. collecting junk, if you will, to to then reuse it. Do you think that is something that, uh, um, you know, some, you know, whether it's European Space Agency, Europe, NASA, what do, you, do you think that's going to happen? Well, there is, this, I guess, in the Outer Space Treaty, it makes it clear that you, to, to do anything to any, I mean, the ownership remains, I mean, even a, a nut and a bolt that come off a, right. a, a satellite still belong to the the country that launched that satellite, and so yeah, you definitely have to get permission to do anything to any piece of material that that has a definitely is identified as belonging to a country. So they would, oh, they would, in terms of 
reusing it and so forth. That would, I mean, also I mentioned uh, there, there's this issue of of the military uh, overlap, uh, dual use, I guess, that if you can go up and rendezvous with a satellite and refill its tank or whatever, you could also put it out of action, right? And so that brings up a whole policy. You've got to get build trust. <laughs> sort of level yeah. You're not going to do no, that. no, I'm, 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 yeah, I'm just looking at it from, yeah, I suppose gotten a little outside of the scope of the report, but, um, yeah, from, you know, from a market perspective, uh, obviously, uh, what, what will happen first is that there'll be agreements put into place, and, you know, for the whoever owns that, that mm. piece of debris, and then, you know, there'll be a, a deal done with whether it's Astroscale or somebody else to, 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 to deal with the debris. Uh, and then there, at some point, yeah. I was going to say that there's also this issue, you know, if, say you moved a satellite to lower orbit, but on the way it collided with some, you know, Starlink or something, then who's responsible, you know? And, and that that's another legal complication. Right, right. Well, so, uh, so that's space debris uh, removal and prevention, I suppose. What about the uh, in-space assembly and, and, and manufacturing? What, what are some of the uh, prospects there? I think that's another, it's an area that's it's active. There are projects going on. Red wire is, which used to be made in space, is has some projects, uh, at least partially funded by NASA, to, to demonstrate uh, you can build large structures in space, like using uh, either like a 3D printing type type technique or some sort of extrusion. And that could lower the cost of building large uh, structures. I mean, if, say if NASA wanted to build a radio telescope in Earth orbit, then that, you know, those are big things. And you could think of doing that with that kind of uh, technique. But so far, the, I don't see any projects right at the moment that are gonna, you know, Putting that into their architecture, but I, I would imagine once it's proved uh, with some demonstrations that it will become a one of the options that, that companies will use when they design their their systems. And so, basically, at this point, there are some companies that are doing on their own some demonstrations or plan to do a demonstration, but some of the more prominent. Uh, I suppose, um, early uh, tests, if you will, or missions are, are, are you know, government-sponsored. Right, right. That's, um, one, OSAM-1 in, in particular, I suppose, right. is one of the, the more prominent ones, right? Right. That's, uh, that's very promising. I, mean, it, I guess uh, what's running, uh, running through the whole report is that there's real stuff going on in all of these areas. If, things that just seem like science fiction 10 or 15 years ago, you know, there are people, there are companies actually doing them. I and mean, Redwire is actually, you know, going to launch this demonstration of building a very large uh, structure in space. And, and I mean, that's, uh, but you still have this problem, you know, where are the, eventually, who, where's the market going to be? Who's going to pay to have their, their satellite built in orbit and so forth? So there's still that step that has to be taken uh, towards the, you know, this a grand human in space uh, world that we hope to see in right. 15, 20 years. <laughs> 
So let's, uh, sticking into the theme of uh, chapter two of in-space uh, infrastructure, um, uh, I'm gonna skip space-based surveillance systems at the moment and, and go like uh, to space tugs, um, because I think that's something that, you know, we're already seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing space tugs being used, but from what I gather, there's, uh, that segment of the industry is 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 definitely maturing. Am I correct? In, in yeah, it's really it's uh, things are really starting falling into place. Uh, you, you know, you've got. I mean, a space dog, just to define, is 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 a vehicle that is in the Earth orbit, and a, a spacecraft is launched from Earth. That the tug uh, rendezvous with it and then moves that uh, object to where it wants to go, and then releases it and then goes off to, to do it again with some other satellite. That's the the in the in uh, view. Right now, there's been a lot of a lot of activity in what's called orbital tra uh, orbital transfer vehicles, which are like sort of expendable space tugs. They when when a, a rocket launches uh, say 50 small sets, maybe 10 of them are actually attached to an OTV, this orbital transfer vehicle. And after it's released from the, the rocket, it takes those 10 satellites and maybe each one it, it releases into a different orbit. And then, and so that, re that relieves those satellite makers of having to install uh, their own propulsion systems. And so they, for these small sets, you know, space and mass is at a premium. You want to minimize and, and use as much of your mass and space and volume for your instruments, that, for your, uh, purpose of your your mission and so it's it's really i mean every time you hear about say a, a spacex uh uh mission that it's launching uh, right these right what they call ride ride share missions where a whole lot of different uh, yeah. small sets are clumped together there's there's usually two or three otvs involved in that uh, launch and there's several companies that like space flight and momentous and so forth that are developing these, and they all have sort of in, uh, you know, generations they're planning ahead, where eventually we'll have a permanent, well, semi-permanent space tug in orbit, and maybe as in the, one of the next sections, they refuel at a space fuel uh, propellant depot, and so so uh, so it's all sort of coming together, and there's also an overlap. The space tug could also be used to deorbit. You know, space right. debris as well. Yes. And then I also read, um, uh, which I thought was quite interesting, um, you know, uh, nuclear tugs. Tell me a little yeah, bit about that. Yeah, that's actually su surprised me. I guess some of the fear of nuclear is, is fading. I mean, <clears throat> the idea is you, you could have like a space tug that with a nuclear, a uh, simple nuclear reactor on board that just keeps it running for you know, many missions, maybe for years. And then, you know, you're really, that's really a future, <laughs> futuristic kind of situation, but it's actually within reach. Was, both NASA and and uh, Air Force are funding, ser you know, serious projects in this area that we outlined in the report. And I think, I think that could happen. Uh, I guess one thing to make clear is usually these things have very low radioactivity when they're launched. It's only when the reactor is turned on that the, does the fuel become highly radioactive. And I always kind of 
try to emphasize that that you're you're not launching a lot of you know radioactive material initially. Right. It's only after it's turned on that right. uh, it becomes active. And so I think, and also this is these are very pretty small small reactors, and they can be shielded quite well. Yeah. So you know it's 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 exciting. It could happen. Also, this uh, we mentioned about power supplies, and that the nuclear also comes into that to have uh, small uh, uh, nuclear reactors for powering things both in space and on the, on the lunar surface. Fascinating. Um, okay, propellant depots. Lots of talk about that. Um, and there's definitely some companies that have done small demonstrations, uh, a lot more demonstrations planned. Where are we at with that in, in terms of uh, you know market prospects? Uh, that's another thing that you know used to be something everybody talked about. Only, but the only thing you could point to would be a conference paper or something. But now you can actually point to companies putting, like Orbit Fab has put something into orbit, a demonstration uh, uh, system for a, uh, I think it's hydrazine, and it's really a, a crucial step that. Uh, you can sort of minimize the amount of fuel you need to get to orbit because once you get there, you can refuel at, at, a, at a depot. And depots in turn have to be filled too, but that's good because it's a, that would be a mar good market for like a reusable rocket system. Just, you know, they just, their job is to keep the gas station uh, supplied. And so, I mean, it, I think right now OrbitFab is... Uh, is talking to potential customers, and they expect to to launch some more operational type of uh, depots. Yes, and, and, and uh, I was reading uh, today that they just announced um, uh, new funding. They just uh, yeah. got another chunk of funding today. So um, the companies are the government has been buying in, but now they're getting some venture capital, uh, some some new venture capital being put in. So. Definitely, uh, it looks like um, uh, that market is starting to uh, slowly grow. Right. I think if you're designing your satellite, you could now start to seriously think, well, I'll, I'll incorporate that into my architecture or my system. Because, you know, maybe it's usually a satellite design maybe takes two or three years. And so now that this is in the, the scope of, of what's available, you'll start to see uh, architectures uh, incorporating it. But I think also what's made depots uh, more real is uh, the plan by SpaceX to use refueling of the Starship when it sends the the uh, human launch system version of the Starship to the moon. It, it's going to have to refuel in orbit. And so they'll first send a, a, a customized Starship into orbit that will act as a depot It'll be refueled by several Starship flights. And then the HLS will come and dock with it, get its fuel, and go on to the moon. I mean, that's a real thing. I mean, it's, it, NASA has chosen them as their yeah. HLS, so it has to work. <laughs> it, you know, or, or SpaceX is in trouble. Yeah, people are used to SpaceX innovating. Well, they're going to have to keep on innovating. That's for um, sure. So, so moving on now. Uh, to an area which uh, there's a lot of opportunity, 
uh, in space communications. And, yeah, that's uh, a thing. And, 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 it's, and it's not just when you think cislunar uh, and we think in space communications and sort of based on, you know, what you might be thinking, preconceived notions of the report, one of the things that people might not be thinking of is, you know, uh, Leo, um, in terms of, uh, you know, in particular, I saw uh, you know, some interesting stuff about replacing NASA's uh, TDRS. Right. <clears throat> yeah, it's kind of amazing. I mean, we're supposed to be living in the space age, but then you'll be, you know, watching some ISS thing and it, it, it goes blank because it moves out of range of uh, some communication. You think, oh, my gosh, why doesn't everybody has internet on the earth? Why don't they? <laughs> and so what these companies are doing is putting uh, satellite constellations in orbit to, whose primary job is to provide communication, not just with the ISS, but with all these other constellations, like for uh, uh, commercial uh, radar, remote sensing. I mean, that's a huge amount of data. And for them to, to wait till they get over a ground station, they lose opportunities to take take more pic more images, and so forth. And so the idea is that these constellations will their primary market will be satellites in space and you know potentially uh, people as well on space stations. And so it, it's there's like as we point out, there's several companies that either have systems being launched now or soon will will have them in orbit. I should clarify that when I what I said previously, I, I know there's lots of constellations that are going up there, communications and the rest of it. I mean, that's the obviously uh, booming uh, and large market and Starlink has certainly uh, shown uh, some of the capabilities that are available um, for that market. But in terms of, I suppose what I was referring to the Cislunar report, maybe people weren't actually thinking so much about that uh, and maybe we're thinking more towards the moon, um, but I, you know, in that cislunar space, yes, we, we, we're focusing a lot on on that uh, comms for whatever the application may be in low Earth orbit. Um, but as you know, you know, we started thinking about the moon and going back to the moon, having a permanent presence on the moon. I was surprised at how many companies are actually working on different types of communication systems. Uh, you know that will reach, you know, low Earth, low Earth orbit to the moon and then con whatever type of constellation, yeah. if you will, communication constellation around the moon. So uh, yeah, how I mean, big a, that, that seems like it's going to be a pretty big market. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty cool to see, you know, like a commercial r robot rover on the moon send a uh, contact a satellite in, in lunar orbit, a commercial satellite, and that's commercial satellite in turn contacts a commercial satellite and Earth orbit, and then it goes down to a commercial station. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's uh, like I say, it's, it's almost a science fiction type of world that's being created. But this, and I think one of the emphasis we should keep emphasizing this, I think a lot of people just don't know, don't realize how much is happening. It's not just, uh, you know, postulations and, and papers being written, it's actually hardware. And in fact, in a couple of weeks from now, we're going to have our first commercial lunar lander at launch and attempt to land on the moon. Uh, and that's iSpace uh, out of Japan, which has a, a whole bunch of payloads on it uh, from around the world. Um, remind me, I, I, I'm trying to remember, uh, is there a, um, 
a satellite that was positioned uh, to help relay communications for them? Uh, not that I know of. Uh, right. But Capstone is is not for as a demonstration. It's on its way. It should also be there pretty soon, right? It's going to go into. Yeah, but uh, that's, that's more to. That's not for. Well, it it's going to prove. Uh, it's going to help with navigation. That in addition to communication services for the moon, there's also this need for like a GPS type of system oh, yeah. for. And that's what this uh, capstone will, will contribute to that. But uh, yeah, I don't think there's a specific satellite uh, for, for I think it'll be on the, you know, there, it's, this probably only lasts a, a week or two weeks during the, the lunar day. So it'll be a pretty short lived mission. Hey, now, now um, so we're, we've, basically gotten through most of the in-space infrastructure, but there's one uh, big piece that's still to uh, to talk about, and that is the orbital platforms. Um, lots going on in, in, in that uh, area uh, on the small scale for, you know, um, some commercial stuff, but um, I don't know, do, I, I think maybe it's more along the human side. I, I sort of maybe skipping ahead I'm thinking of, um, you know, um, replacing the ISS uh, and some mm -hmm. of the uh, stations, uh, commercial stations. Um, how do you see that uh, playing out? Okay, yeah, there's uh, there's actually quite a number of companies developing these, starting off with these uh, unmanned uh, small platforms. The idea is that if you want to do a scientific experiment or or test, or maybe even make uh, uh, these special light fibers. You could actually use it, these little space uh, platforms as a manufacturing station. And then in addition to the making of the stations, there's a lot of work going on on returning small payloads to Earth uh, safely, you know, that they can land and that they, they can withstand the, the heating and so forth. There's, there's quite a few demonstration projects there. And so it's sort of complete the loop of you know sending things there with a, sending things to us uh, orbiting platform with a commercial satellite doing whatever work you you're doing there and then sending the results back on a commercial uh, payload return system. Now, as you say, that eventually there'll be some overlap with the uh, human stations that are planned that are currently. I think the earliest probably be. 2026 before you'll see a, a I mean uh, yeah a, a commercial human type of station first starting to go up into orbit and they'll be and they're they're kind of after the same similar kind of market they want to do you know scientific uh, uh, provide scientific uh, platforms for and for uh, commercial uh, projects and then but also be a place where people can go and that's right. Uh, yeah, space yeah. tourism and so forth. And also, like one thing about the platforms that just let me just want to mention they could also you could see some overlap. Maybe some of them will provide uh, fuel depots as well. That kind of thing. Yeah, and I'm just thinking of NanoRacks in particular, which you know has planned to do. Uh, you know, they've got the uh, the contract with uh, with NASA for, for for their concept of a uh, human uh, yeah. space station, but at the same time. They're also doing the um, 
uh, if you you know part if you want to call it the orbital platform, um, uh, which is unmanned as well, and, and they're going to work together, right? The yeah. I, mm. All right. So uh, time being, uh, we're getting a little late here. So let's skip a little bit. Let's talk a little about uh, uh, lunar markets because we've been spending a, a good portion of our time in the in-space infrastructure and a lot of it in, in, in low Earth orbit. So lunar markets, um, uh, commercial robotic uh, lunar missions, we've already touched briefly about iSpace, uh, but uh, after iSpace, there's gonna be a whole slew of them. Uh, what, at least nine or something like that? Eight or nine missions? Yeah, uh, uh, those are the ones that are funded partially by NASA. Yeah. NASA's acting more as a customer and then they give a sort of a base contract, but they need, <clears throat> The companies will need additional revenue, and they're they're out beating the bushes for all sorts of applications. Maybe somebody wants to <clears throat> send a, a privately funded scientific experiment, for example, or they're going to put you pay so much and you get your DNA sent to the moon. And there's also they also want to to look at uh, whether at this uh, hope hopefully plentiful resource of water on the moon. There's been these various scientific uh, missions have given, you know, very high probability that there is water on the water ice and the uh, regolith of, of the these deep craters that are at the lunar poles, which are, which are constantly in the dark. And but still, you know, there's, there's you still there's still, still some scientists that say, you know, it's 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 not if it's there it's not as plentiful as as people hope so that will be one of the prime goals will be to find to prove that there's water ice and then the next goal will be you know can you extract that ice in a in a practical manner and if that all happens then things really start to to blossom you could have uh, not only water for potential uh, space stations on the moon you could you could send the water into orbit and it could be used for fuel. You could start having like a water-based economy in the, in the cislunar and eventually all the way to the Mars and the asteroids. And so it's quite exciting a few uh, few years ahead just to see, you know, to watch as this starts to unfold. So when we think about the, the cislunar economy uh, and the market opportunities, uh, we're obviously seeing a, 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 a vast majority of them in the short term in, in low Earth orbit. Uh, and as we uh, make our way to the moon, um, and uh, we're going to see uh, new opportunities present themselves and potentially new markets, especially if the, uh, the, the amount of water is what some people think it is. Um, let's talk about the, the human equation for the last uh, um, couple minutes here. Um, and let's maybe focus on the commercial uh, human lunar activities. So, you know, we have the Artemis program. Um, you know, uh, the goal was, uh, as set by the uh, previous administration, to, to get there by 2024. Now it's going to be, well, hopefully 2025. Um, uh, do we see enough? Um, Enough progress being made that that you know 2025, 2026 is is is, is going to be doable. 
I would think just for for maybe one or two demonstration missions. And uh, I mean, you know, it's not a sure thing. I mean, we don't even know if Starship's going to work, right? No, hasn't. Yeah, we have to make sure it can actually get to orbit and and so forth. And then the Artemis. I mean, there's, you know, you, I don't want to get an SLS, but they have to prove that they can, uh, that the rocket will work and that it can put a put a, a capsule into Earth into lunar orbit. And that's coming so up like, you also know, within a, like three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, uh, you know, I think it should go. I mean, you know, everything seems to slip in, in the space world. I mean, I'm just reading about Ariane 6. But, but anyway, I would think it's possible. I, I definitely think, uh, you know, if, if Starship was just sitting around waiting for things to happen on the NASA side, I could see them going ahead and just doing a fly around mission right. on the moon just to test out their systems. And then they have these two commercial missions with uh, people on board that would do a fly around. Uh, just right. the other day, the, the Tito announced that they were going to, they're putting together a mission with him and his wife and I think eight other people. And then there's this, uh, I forget his name, the Japanese guy who's, he'll be yeah, the first. That's right. So that's, I mean that's exciting. So, I remember or I remember somebody mentioning to uh to the astronaut was it a bean and he was somebody said do you think there'll be space tourism? He said, Oh, not for a hundred years. <laughs> or tourism to the moon. Right, uh, right. So things are happening fast. It is. So uh but everything, at least for Artemis, starts with S the SLS launch, uh, which is coming up in you know the next windows in about three weeks. Uh and should that uh, then go uh, well then Artemis 1 which will be uh, the crude version mm. uh, um, uh, going around the moon but not landing uh, sorry Artemis 2 uh, and then of course after that um, assuming Starship and everything else aligns we'll then get to um, Artemis 3 and actually landing on the moon so um, and of course along the way uh, money has to be allocated. That's right. <laughs> and, and as we know, with Congress, it's always uh, you never know what's going to happen. They've been they've been supportive up to a point uh, right now, but um, uh, a lot there's a lot of pieces and a lot of expensive pieces in this architecture. Um, so we'll just have to to wait and see how that. Uh, yeah, how the that problem. Goes. I mean, I have a lot of problems with SLS, but one problem is just that it doesn't fly very often. So you've got, like you say, a lot of eggs in the basket of just three flights. I mean, you've got to, those will have to happen without any practice flights, really, except for these very, just like this first one is, a, is more or less right. a practice. So we covered a lot of territory and there's a lot more we could cover. Um, so uh, if people want to learn more, then they'll just have to get the report. Um, which is available at uh, cislunar.report. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is the commercial cislunar development path. Uh, so this report is basically an, uh, an update of a 2019 report that was done by New Space Global. And in that first report, uh, you had identified three features of commercial development in the cislunar domain. Uh, that were highlighted, parallel development, incremental development, robust participation, 
And then in this one, you've added two more, uh, high capitalization and reaching space. So maybe just talk briefly about that. Yeah, that, I guess I've been implying that. I mean, I, like you, I'm sure you you went to many space conferences and saw business uh, plan sessions and, you know, back in the 90s and the aughts. And you would say, oh, that's a good idea, but, you know, you're never going to get any money for that. <laughs> you're never going to get for that constellation. Idea. That constellation idea is great, but you, you'll be lucky to get, a, you know, $10,000. But now, you know, we've seen this revolution in the past 10 years of just, you know, a growing tidal wave of money. I mean, maybe it's cresting at the moment because of the economic situation, but still, it's, it's a lot of money have gone into space development. And as we keep emphasizing it, every section of this report is told through the development of real companies building real hardware, and many of them have stuff in space. And that's just the, I mean, I'm still getting my mind <laughs> around it, because like I say, I've been in this, following this area for such a long time, and it's uh, it's really a new a new phase, and that's why I'm saying high capitalization. You know, there's a lot of money has come in, and now now we have to see, you know, can they can they can the companies fulfill their promises now that they have the money, and I say reaching space. You know, that's actually doing things and, and demonstrating, and then making it to a real business, a real industry. Uh, it's uh, that's just since uh, 2019. Like so many of these things have become real, not just uh, uh, view graphs. So we've turned the corner for the cislunar economy into lots of people with lots of ideas to lots of companies actually doing something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, we're going to leave it on that note. Uh, thank you uh, very much. Uh, and then uh, when some new reports come out, we'll, uh, uh, we'll get you back on the show to talk about it. Sounds fun. It's quite an exciting time. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. As always, your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us a comment or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Economy Space. And you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. Until next time.